0: Happening, guys. Happy Wednesday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. So, we've got some news coming out of the UFC's middleweight division, and later on today's show, I'm going to tell you all about it. Plus, John Jones is tweeting again, and can anyone take down Kamara Usman? All of that later. But first, I want to react to some action that we saw over the weekend. is it Curtis Blades versus Dawkins? Now, there's a lot of moving parts here because there was a major commentary coming in on Curtis Blades when the fight was over with regards to the fact that he did not take a single shot. I saw more headlines about this than I did anything else Curtis related. There was even odds that got posted that you'd have made $2,000 for every $100 you bet if you were to bet that Curtis doesn't take a single shot. And it seemed as though this were in the positive. It seemed as though with the things that I read and that I heard that this was a good thing and good for Curtis. So let me just ask you, was it? Are you one of the people that thinks that cool? Because because what you're telling me is that you'd rather see a good wrestler box than a good boxer box. Or a good boxer go out there and not use his skills, right? I mean, it's just the phenomenon that I'm speaking to, not the actual skills of Curtis Blaze. You know I'm Curtis's biggest advocate, and possibly his only. But he does have a national championship in wrestling. That's the same national championship that Kamara Usman has. It's the same one that Chris Weidman has. It's the same one that John Jones has. It's the same one that Dan Henderson has. To put in perspective for you what junior college wrestling is about, it's tough, it's hard to do, rare company. So somewhere along the way, Curtis gets a knock on him that he's not fun to watch. Now, if you're not fun to watch, you got to go and solve that problem. And from the beginning of time, somebody came out and said that you want to see two guys go stand and bang. That's just a belief. That has started in our sport and that never went away. It, nobody takes into account that the biggest draw that the sport's ever had is George St. Pierre, who has never standed and banged it with anybody. It never takes into account that the second biggest draw, and the number one anomaly that our sport has ever had, is Brock Lesnar, who's never standed and banged in with anybody. The biggest female draw the sport has ever seen is Ronda Rousey, who has never stood and banged with anybody. It's one of these things, but it's still a belief that just won't go away. Let's just take a closer look at it. Is it true? Because if you say that it is, then there's a number of sports that I can guarantee that you've gone and watched. But if I was to point that gun at you and say, well, then certainly you go and watch, you might come back and say no. You do want to watch MMA. You want to see the best in the world. But do you buy into the theory that the best in the world should not use their number one skills? They should defer to something else. Maybe the answer might be yes. I'm just taking a little bit closer, look at it like there might be something fun about that, about going, look, you got a national champion wrestler in Curtis Blades, but he's not going to bring his greatest skills. He's going to take a bigger risk. And so that doesn't only create a risk offensively, it creates the much greater risk defensively and perhaps I can see him fail. In fact, my biggest chance to see him fail is if he leaves his greatest tool behind. But do you see how weird that got? Like you probably had a hard time even following what I just said, let alone processing. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting concept. But Curtis Blades goes out with had a single shot, and he gets a knockout. Great. This is just what happened. Dawkins is a tough customer. Dawkins is going to start to get a rap that he's got a weak chin. He does not. He doesn't. Not in my opinion. Dawkins can take a heck of a shot. The shot that put him down against the beast, or the shot that put him down by Curtis. I mean these, these were perfect punches. Just one of those things. If you want to give Docus a hard time just because that's fun, I think you're gonna have a hard time doing it. If you want to defend Docus as I'm trying to do, you're probably gonna have time looking at his, his last couple of fights on the internet and just staring at the paper and do it. but it's true. Like there was really good moments in Dawkins' fight with the beast as well as with Curtis Blaze, but Curtis Blaze comes out on top. Curtis has Stepe in the audience. Now who you're going to call out is very meaningful and you're generally never going to get what's called a tee. You're never going to get teed up by the announcer. That's just not the announcer's job. And once in a blue moon, if the announcer does tee you up, it's probably because he misspoke. He was probably trying to do the interview, in this case, Daniel Cormier, and he happened to give you a softball right down the middle, and Daniel did. Daniel's taking a look at the division, the division that used to be his. Nobody's got more right to speak on this than the former champion himself and he asked curtis blades do you want a title shot right down the middle with stipe miocic who we all believe will be fighting for that belt is going to be the undisputed of the interim championship he's sitting right there everything's wonderful now i cannot fault curtis because curtis and Stepe are friendly they used to be training partners that much i do know where the relationship stands today but that's a tough thing you come in a guy's hometown Steve Ace is trying to take in the show with a building full of support do you really want to point do you really want to burn your relationship over a potential callout that you're unlikely to get it's extremely important in this sport that when you call for something you get it if it's a match that makes no level of sense or doesn't interest you at all but you feel the wind going in that direction you are better served to call for it before the headlines come out and tell you that you're doing it anyway so he kind of passed, Curtis Blades. He kind of passed on Stipe. He said something nice to Stipe. He hedged his bet, but he really went after Surreal Gone. Now that call out bothered a lot of you. A lot of people say, hey man, I don't understand this. In addition, Blades was speaking to the question that he was asked by Daniel Cormier in terms of is a title fight next. Blades took that part of it and wanted to go after Surreal for an interim championship. Why would Surreal be fighting for an interim championship? I'm not challenging the notion on its surface. I'm looking into it. Why? Because he had a close fight with Ngannou? Because he is the most recent interim champion? Brings about. I just don't know a time in history where a guy can lose in a title fight and then goes on to be in a title fight. It may have happened. You might be able to go to the internet improvement, but but I'm pretty good at this, and I just don't know of one off the top of my head, so why would Surreal qualify for that? Why would Surreal be in that spot? Moreover... What does Blades expect to get from Surreal? Now, that is a rhetorical question. Let me answer it for you. What a fighter wants when he calls somebody out, he wants a response. That opponent that you're looking for, make no mistake, is your partner. Not only the night of business when you step in there, every single day trying to capture the headlines every day leading up to, you've got a partner. Surreal, I've been giving Surreal a hard time. In all fairness, I come over and pick on the way Surreal carries out media and or lack thereof. I'm being like a little kid. I just want him to say something. I'm very sincere when I come out and tell you what a bad job that Surreal has buried his head in the sand. That he did that before the Angano fight and he's done it after. That's just a factually correct statement. But that little kid in me that keeps jabbing at Surreal, I just want him to speak up. There's something about Surreal for me I find interesting. And I need a little bit more of it. And me saying that he doesn't do anything and buries his head in the stand, and you guys have joined me in this, but what are we really doing? We're trying to get him to say something. So when Curtis calls out Saria one for a title shot, which is simply is not going to happen, not to mention one half of the next title fight is sitting there in Stipe. All Stipe needs is a partner who appears to be John Jones. So as soon as you pass on that, it's quite a leap to believe that you're going to find yourself in there, with yet another guy who's not there that's not going to give you any kind of response and that a belt is going to be on the line. It's just a really big leap. I'm not against the whole thing. Not all of it. It's not going to be a title fight, and I think that that's a little bit silly, and you're not going to get anything that you don't ask for. I wouldn't give anybody a hard time for asking for a title fight. I'm coming back to the premise that you cannot ask for anything that you then get swatted away you will look as though you have no power. Now, the truth is in this world, nobody's got any power, but you can look like you do. Or you can show your hand, you look the opposite. As I think about Curtis Blades versus Surreal God, I got nothing against it. That's not going to be a marquee and a headline, and Curtis is going to do his part, and Blades is going to do his, and whoa, be careful at the weigh-ins. We can't let these guys get face-to-face. It's none of those things. But if you do want to look at it from a competitive standpoint, that's an interesting match. Is Curtis, and you'd have to ask yourself this one question, going into it, is Curtis Blades going to continue to be controlled by people on the internet who say he should stand and bang as opposed to going out and using his wrestling prowess? Because if you come to the conclusion that he is, now the fight against surreal gone just got a lot more interesting. And if you were to defer back just a paper, one thing that surreal had going into the fight with Ngannou, why that fight was such a surprise that the predator, competitor, the Predator, not only came from behind, he came from behind three rounds in a row through a form of grounded pound. the reason it was so surprising, surreal had never been on bottom. Not one second. He had never been taken down. Now, we discussed over here that he had never been in there with anybody who had attempted to take him down. So the mere fact that Curtis Blades has it, I mean, look, this is going to be the knock on Surreal until he proves otherwise. The knock on Surreal is going to be take him down, keep him there and beat him up. He could go two, three, four more fights if the people aren't trying to take him down. He's still going to have that same knock with that same question mark. Curtis Blades could solve that problem. But it is very interesting if you're just guessing, if you're just closing your eyes and imagines what happens in that fight, you do come back to the same premise, which is Curtis Blaze, a national champion wrestler, if he was to take on Surreal Gone, is Curtis going to even use the tool of wrestling? In the heavyweight division, I want to transition to the latest with John Jones, who surprisingly I haven't talked about on the podcast recently. Allow me to correct that. John Jones, talking about himself, said, My candle at light heavyweight had blown out and it showed in my last performance. Now, what is he talking about? John's last performance feels like it was three years ago and it I believe it was against Dominic Reyes. I also thought that John lost that fight, but John had to show a real heart and he had to show a real grit. It was not the skills, it wasn't the punching and the kicks that brought him from behind and John's been put in that spot a couple of times where his skill set seems to separate. He's got the longest reach and he knows how to use these elbows and he shows sharp bony Jones. There's a ton of truth to those skills One thing that you don't see as much is how tough he is. When it's time to get tough or it's time to be weak, he toughs it out. John's sitting here speaking about he's now remotivated and he's doing that at heavyweight. What if he's telling the truth? And this would not be something that John would come to mislead you, the audience. It's something that he would use the audience as a way of convincing himself. It's very normal with all human beings and you see it a lot with fighters and you only know in hindsight who was accurate and who wasn't. You will hear about prime of a career. But nobody ever takes the time to explain, was it his prime mentally, or are you talking about his physical prime? And once the prime goes, and it can never come back, that stuff is largely mental. Largely. It's a pie, and there's other pieces to it, and father time is undefeated, and all of those adages that you hear, there's a lot of truth to that, but a guy also knows what he's putting into it. I could see it with my own teammates. When I came up through Team Quest, we were very coveted. We had multiple world champions in the room. Everybody in the room was ranked in the top ten in some weight class or another, broad stroke, but very good fighters. And there was a number of teammates who the more I read about them, the more I saw them in the public eye, the less I saw them at practice. The more practices they were watching from the sidelines, or they were showing up later, they were leaving early. It was a very real thing. And I could look at those teammates as hot as their brand was getting, And as much as their name was out there, I knew it's a matter of time. They're not putting in the work. They don't have the same focus. They don't have the same dedication. It got taken away. And I would tell you within my own career, I used to look forward every day to going to practice. It was so fun. It was so exciting. I remember the very first day... When Dan Henderson and Randy Couture threw me a pair of gloves, they said Harbinger on them. They were Velcroed. You put them on. There's, I mean, I remember these really clear. I remember putting these on and taking my wrestling shoes off, and it was such an exciting moment. I remember the room we were in. I remember the shorts that I was wearing. Like, this was a really exciting day. Everybody will go through that at some point. That excitement, like anything else, will go away a little bit. It starts to become a job. It starts to be something you have to do. That's a reality. But my motivation, that exciting looking forward to practice, that ended over 10 years before the day I retired. I had five world title fights after that motivation had gone away. And I operated on something called discipline. Here's what I have to do. Here's what needs to be done to move myself towards my goal. I know it. I've studied it. I've done it personally. This is what has to be done. I was able to run on discipline. But if you can set discipline aside and you can operate on motivation, it's a very exciting time. And I work with wrestlers to this day, and I will even help to coach coaches who are talking to wrestlers, and I will tell them, stay away from the word motivation. I will hear people preach to a young group of athletes, you've got to be motivated if you've got to want it. How? What if you don't? What if you are not motivated and you don't want it, but you still expect to win? Can you do it? Well, of course you can. But now you're going to one of the hardest things in life—discipline. I'm going to force myself to check these boxes every day. It's a very difficult thing to do. So I want to refer that back to John Jones because when I heard this interview, John doesn't try to sell anything. It's a knock on him. John is the main event in an arena that's got people dressed up as empty seats. It's a knock on him. John's had to, had to leave a division. Because he cleaned it out and there was nobody that you, the audience, was captivated enough that perhaps could beat John. Even in the fights that he wanted on to have that went on to be blockbusters. You could look at Gustafson Part 1. You could look at the fight with Santos, where many people thought Santos won. You could talk about Reyes, where I personally thought Reyes won. But not going into them. Coming out, there were these very beautiful performances. And I could give John a number of compliments. I'm talking about the anticipation going into them. Nobody knew those guys could compete with him. And I've never been convinced that that division and John had parted ways as much as John had just passed over the division. He was starting to lap it. he's starting to look at names that he's already been in there with. He's starting to have a bunch of readers. He started his career very young where there were legends in the sport You could put a poster and, oh my goodness, John's going to be standing opposite, and then you could fill in the blank whether that was going to be Machida or that was going to be Rampage Jackson. I think at one point in time, John Jones versus Chris Weidman was actually headed for each other, even though there were different weight classes, but the point is there were things that we were looking forward to. If that goes away for you, and I have evidence of the fact that it did go away for you, my proof is that the arenas weren't full. That isn't speaking to the skills of John and or his opponent, it's speaking to the anticipation ahead of time. You, the audience, believing you know how the movie is going to end, and therefore, what's the point in buying a ticket? Well, heavyweight is completely different. It's completely different for us. There's questions that we have. There's things that we want to see. So if that's true, which it is, you could exemplify that for what goes inside of John Jones, and now he's finally speaking out the first time. He's talking about the hunger that he has. He's talking about the excitement he has. He's talking about he's got a point to prove and he wants to go and do it. What if that stuff's true? I will tell you, when I hear inside scoop from teammates or coaches or people that are in the room with John Jones, and this is after he left Jackson Wink, which means between his last fight and this one, guys, it's through the roof what they're saying about this guy. These rumors on John Jones, it's, it's unbelievable the way that are people that are there and watching him train go. I'm into the experiment. I have been into the John Jones experiment from day one, which is John going into a new weight class. The only part of this that I ever disagreed with was that he needed to weigh 240 pounds. That's a very arbitrary number, but you have to pick a number. Like, there just has to be. Use the world that we're living in where you need six feet of social distance. Well, what's wrong if it's five and a half? Or how come it's not sa- Like, you have to pick a number. It's rel- So John picks 240 pounds, and then he updates us all through social media known as Instagram. And the closer he gets to the 240 pound mark of which he has achieved, the closer he gets by his verbiage to sign a contract and coming back and fight it. However- The story and the anticipation for me, and I speak for the collective me, all of us, still hasn't changed. We want to know how John will do against a bigger opponent. Which is where matching them up gets a little bit tricky. We all believe that he should be fighting Stipe. We all believe that he's going to fight Stipe. Stipe in his last fight, and the one before that and the one before that did not weigh more than 240 pounds, which we know John weighs. Now, John versus Stipe works. I'm not trying to make believe that it doesn't, but it does take away the one question of the John Jones experiment. Imagine John goes to fight Stipe. Just imagine for me, if you will. We don't ever know what a guy's going to weigh. We know what he's going to weigh less than when it comes to heavyweight. He's going to weigh less than 265 pounds. So just imagine John, Stipe, big buildup. They come across the stage. They got off the scale and they're having the first ever face off. And you look and you go, my God, John's bigger. And not only do your eyes tell you that, but then you have the quantifiable number of the scale. John weighs in at a mythical 240 pounds. Stipe weighs in at a mythical, a mythical 231 pounds. You got a problem. And this has been tested. This was tested in Stepe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier, part one. They went and did the ultimate fighters, this huge thing, and DC's got the whole champ-champ business, but DC isn't big enough for the weight class. Do you guys remember this? Then they do the weigh-in. Daniel Cormier, weighed the light heavyweight, weighed in more than the heavyweight champion. And the line changed instantly. This is not just my opinion. I'm sharing with you guys a historical fact. The line changed. And nobody ever knows what to make of it. Nobody knows if a guy weighs more. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? I can remember being a kid. Mike Tyson had a fight. I believe it was against Lennox Lewis. But Mike Tyson had done the training camp in Hawaii. Nobody knew what he did. Nobody knew how he prepared. He took his team. He took his coaches out there. But the lines moved against Iron Mike just on the fact of where he did a training camp with the belief by the public, how, how much are you going to train in Hawaii? It's too beautiful. There's too many options. Why are you going to lock yourself away? Why would you do all the things that you would do, by example, in Big Bear? when you're in Hawaii. it was I didn't understand that when I was a kid. I must have been 10, 11, no more than 12 years old when this fight took place, but I remember people talking about it. I remember thinking it was ridiculous. Then Mike got to the scale. He weighed in the most that he had ever weighed for another fight. Mike Tyson in his prime was anywhere between 220 and 222 pounds. And I can't remember when he came in for this fight, but the line moved drastically. Now you have the narrative going into the fight. How much training are you actually doing in Hawaii? And now we have an answer. If a picture is worth a thousand words, the look of Mike Tyson going to this contest where he prepared in Hawaii was a very different looking Mike Tyson. And when that line moved, Mike got stomped the next night, which was unlike Mike Tyson. This wasn't a back and forth battle. This was really one-sided from a guy that looked as though he was out of shape. Now, I only bring that to you, not to give Tyson a hard time, I'm giving you a historical reference that I happened to live through. And that people that knew more about the fight game than me, and also knew human nature and personalities more than I did at that point in my, they were all right. Apparently there is other things to do in Hawaii that's good for distractions. What a guy weighs is very relevant because you're talking about calories in versus calories out. If a guy comes in heavy, you don't have a whole lot of options as to why. He either ate too much of X food or he didn't work hard enough and burn it off, right? It's very straightforward. There's a reason that we weigh them in and make a whole show out of this. It's not just so you can make the contracted weight. It's very relevant what a guy weighs as opposed to what he used to weigh. So if John was to fight Stipe and only the day before we get them on the scale and we find out that John's bigger than Steve, right, the experiment goes up. It's relevant. As small of a detail as it might be, it would be very relevant. I shared with you guys through my pen pal who is Stipe's wife. She says that Stipe's put on 20 pounds. I have to assume that those 20 pounds are from the last time Stipe weighed in, of which he weighed 233 pounds. So I'm imagining Stepe weighs 253 pounds. Seeing Stipe at the show when they did the cameo of him over the weekend, whatever he weighs, it's the right way. It's a good-looking and hard build. whatever he's got, but that still preserves the story of can John take on a bigger man. There's a lot of moving parts to this. There really is. But the overarching, the number one thing that John had in this interview, John is a guy who does not sell. He doesn't come out. He does not hype. He doesn't promote. He just doesn't do those things in conjunction with the fact that he had nothing to advertise. He had no date. He had no opponent. I took it as sincere. I took it as a guy who agreed to do an interview who answered the question that was asked of him that speaks to motivation. A motivated heavyweight John Jones is a very interesting prospect. So in a few minutes, I'm going to get in on the exciting action that's been booked at middleweight. But before we get to that, here's a quick word about today's sponsor. Do you identify as crypto curious? If you've thought about entering the world of cryptocurrency, but felt a little bit overwhelmed, our friends at Coinbase make learning to buy and sell very simple. I've been studying and investing in crypto for quite some time now, and I understand it might feel like an exclusive club, but let me put your mind at ease, because it's not. Coinbase believes that everyone, everywhere, should be able to get into the door. Whether you've been trading for years, or if you're just getting started, Coinbase can help. Coinbase offers a trusted and easy to use platform where you can buy, sell and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market and make them accessible to everyone. They also offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources and a mobile app so you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people. In over 100 countries, trust Coinbase with their digital assets. Whether you're looking to diversify or just getting started or searching for a better way to access crypto markets, you can start today with Coinbase. Sign up at Coinbase.com slash for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only. So listen to Uncle Chael and make sure you sign up today. That's Coinbase.com slash Chael. Marvin Vittori versus Robert Whitaker gets announced on the heels of Piora versus Sean Strickland. Now, if you're a middleweight fan, those are some very compelling matchups. And if you were to look a little bit closer, meaning, what do I get if I win? Are they contenders' fights? Uh, You'd probably have a hard time convincing me that Vittori versus Whitaker is just yet. You probably are going to make that fight for one of them to stand their ground and the whole audience to take a look and Robert Whitaker can prove that he's bouncing back and all of these positive terms, but it is very relevant. How quickly Robert Whitaker was going to get back on the horse is something that I've been interested in. Robert Whitaker did his most talking after he was done fighting Israel Adesanya but he went to the press conference he was not happy about it and he swore to everybody that he was going to get right back in there quickly and he didn't care who it was against then he even went to social media and teased the whole world that he could be going down to 170 pounds and as simple as this all may sound it's more than Robert has ever done and we've seen a lot of people right after a fight go and say crazy things and I'm going to define crazy as things that they don't mean make promises that they never keep Say things that two and three and four days later, it turned out they're feeling a little bit different. We see that in the heat of the moment, on the microphone, or the post-fight press conference in this case. Doesn't ever come to fruition. So the fact that Robert Whitaker is turning around, this is pretty quick. I mean, this is going to be the middle of June, but in all fairness, he's going to be starting training camp tomorrow. It's a quick turnaround for Whitaker against a very game opponent, so we know that he's got some motivation. That's, That's great. Number one thing you can take away from that is what I just stated. Now, take a look at Peora versus Sean Strickland. This is matchmaking at its finest. If there's certain ingredients that you want in a story, Peora has them. The only issue is going to be, how are you and who is going to go out and tell that story? Most of you would not know what an Alex Peora was if he was standing right in front of you. But in all fairness, the champion of the world, Israel Adesanya, does. Nobody speaks more about Pior than Israel Adesanya. Apparently, they had crossed paths back in the world of professional kickboxing days, and Peor won the end. I can't take anything more of it than that, but that eats away at Adesanya, and that's something I can relate to. When you have one of these matches that keeps you up at night because you didn't have the outcome that you wanted, you just assume the whole world knows. You assume the whole world knows all about it, you assume the whole world saw it, you assume that the whole world wants to see it again. But whether that assumption is right or wrong, nobody steers their own career in the entire sport of MMA. Not right now. Nobody does a better job than Adesanya. If you want to fight Adesanya before you take it to the people, before you take it to your opponent, take it to Adesanya. He steers his own career and that's very relevant because Adesanya is helping pure, Then you've got Sean Strickland. Now this guy's a lightning rod. Sean wants you to all think that he's crazy Sean Strickland. Who knows what I'm going to do and say next. But he's also on a seven fight win streak. Guys, I could have that wrong and he's won eight in a row. Sean Strickland has not lost in a period of time. Sean Strickland has never lost at 185 pounds. Sean Strickland, in my opinion, is the clear number one contender, but he's not getting the shot. Sean Strickland's last loss was at 170 pounds to the current GOAT, Kamara Usman. Everything on paper about Sean is beautiful. Now you just got time to come around. Whoever the champion this is, in this case it's Adesanya, you can only fight one guy at a time. And apparently he's going to be fighting Jared Cannonier Now... As I digress and I break down the fights that are made for you guys, you might be looking forward to it. You might be thinking this one's for a title shot. I feel as though you would have missed the message. In everything that I just said, the entire message is glaringly clear, which is, where's Paulo Costa? If the last four minutes of your life you heard everything that I had to say, and you're not asking yourself, where is Paulo Costa? Now, I have a good relationship with Paulo Costa, but I stay out of his business. I never call him and ball. I never text him, hey, what's going on? I have my own opinions on Paulo Costa. First off, he's awesome. He's not just good. He's not just a great fight. He's more than that. He is something special. And above everything, I want to see him at light heavyweight. I'm all alone. It does not matter how much I want that or how much I come to you guys, and then you support me in the comments or you go on social media. He is not going to 205 pounds, according to him. His own manager has spoke up about that. His own coach, when I talked to him. Captain E, they all said, no, 185 pounds. I will never get my way on that, but I feel that I'm owed. As a fan, I feel that I'm owed an explanation. Why 185 pounds? Is this purely about getting back in there with Israel Adesanya? I'll accept it if that's the answer. I don't have to like the answer. That's not what I'm talking to you guys about. I'm saying I'm owed an answer. Is this all about 185 pounds? This is the path I'm on. This is a childhood dream, and this is where I dreamed about. I'll listen. I've just never been told that. Now, when I come out and I make a case for you guys about the parody and how quickly a blueprint could at least fictionally be put into place and fabricated to get him, Paulo Costa, to a world title fight at 205 pounds, it's pretty quick. It's pretty damn compelling. When I come and I plead with you guys, I know this guy and I've stood, but just as a way of telling you how big he is, I know he looks like a monster on television, but some guy, they looked, this is a big guy. In addition to that, his last fight was 205 pounds. He agreed, if you'll recall, two days before the fight to change the weight class from 185 to 195. He's taking on Marvin Vittori. He then agreed 24 hours before the weigh-in to move from 195 to 205 pounds. My case that I'm attempting to make the Paulo Pasta is a big guy. I've got evidence, and there it is. 205 pounds is why I'd be very interested. Now, this is his career and his life, and he gets to do what he wants. We all have to sit back and just be reactors. Fine. I'm reacting to it. This is my reaction. My reaction is two mega fights at 185 pounds just got made. I would believe by looking at the players that were removed from the board, not put on the board, they were just taken off. I would use that to surmise that Jarek Kananir is in fact getting the title shot and that Paulo Acosta is in fact lined up with nobody, and I'm wondering why. It's my bigger takeaway. If he wants to go to 185 pounds, go ahead. He could raise his hand right now. He's got a contract. I'm at 185 pounds. If you're going to go do that at 185 pounds, against who? Because I just told you who it's not going to be with. I just named all of the meaningful competitors at that weight class. And there's two categories. Don't forget that. Don't let anybody convince you there's a top 10 list. First off, they don't go to 10. Apparently, they go to 15. I have no idea whose idea that was. But even that, there's not a top 10 list. Top five. If you are not in the top, you're in a separate category if you're in the top five. At any point, number four, number five, number two, number one, can go in and fight for a world title fight. Number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, number 10, cannot. And history will prove that I'm right. But if you're anywhere in that top five, you're in that conversation. Now you got the politics and the geography of it. Where's this fight going to be? And of course, the date matters. And of course, have you already matched up with the guy? There's a lot of things that you talked about, but there's two categories. You got top 10, top 5. And the reason I bring that to you is where's Paulo going to go if he's staying at 185 pounds? Against who? Is Paulo Costa not the hammer that I think he is? Is he not the competitor that I think he is? Is he not the contender that we've all seen? And all of a sudden, he's taken on a number 12, a number 14? That sounds irresponsible to me. I'm light on the idea. Or is Paulo Costa, behind the scenes, fi- agreed with us and thinks he should go up to 205 pounds? We won't know the answers. The guy is very mythical. We don't know anything ahead of time with Paulo Costa, but there is hope and there is a chance, based on what we just said, I think that you've really got two schools of thought. First off, there's probably nothing to see here. In all fairness, Paulo Costa is likely 185 pounder and he just hasn't raised his hand. X, Y, and Z is still bothering. Something's always getting to the guy and he's just not ready to go in yet. Okay, fine. The simplest answer is usually the, and that's probably exactly what it is, but there's still a chance that that isn't the case, and that he is making a move to 205 pounds and he's just buying himself some time. But when I do look at these middleweight matches that are being made, I don't think about the matches that are to come. I don't think the guys that are about to fight. I look at who's not. close out today's program, I want to focus on the welterweight champion Kamara Usman and some interesting comments that I heard about him. Paul Felder was doing an interview and he was talking about Kamara Usman and what it's going to take to beat him. And Paul had laid out it's going to take a dominant wrestler, just by example. The guy's got to be big and the guy's got to be strong. Now, I don't disagree. I just haven't seen any evidence within Kamara's Usman's career that if you put him on his back, he's got a big problem. I was thinking about Colby Covington last night, and that same thing is true. Like, since they've set that octagon up in 1993, there are not very many beliefs, there are not many absolutes that we had as an ideal or in practice since 1993 that still exists today in 2022. I can only think of one, which is if you get on top of a guy and you keep him there, good things are going to happen. Like, that is one thing from the first time they've set that octagon up until today the guy that can get top of the other guy and keep him there, good things are going to happen for him. They more times than not are going to raise his hand. And the reason I bring that to Colby Covington, I've never seen anybody take Colby down and then have to see what Colby could do on bottom. I can remember a scramble where Masvidal, by example, got on top of Colby, what we would call control time in the sport of wrestling, and Colby handled it like a college wrestler, which is he came to his knees and then his feet, whereas MMA would say you go to your knees and then you go to your back. Like, that's a belief within MMA. That is not a belief within the wrestling community. You go down, you go to your knees within the wrestling community. You get up to your feet and you turn and face them. Only point being, I haven't seen anybody do that to Kobe. And you would think if you had a a great wrestler in there and you follow the same procedure that we have studied since 1993 till today, that would be the way to beat Covington. But we did that to Covington. We stuck him in there with a great wrestler known as a national champion, known as Kamar Uzman. It just didn't happen. So it's very hard for me to disagree with Paul Felder. Like, the one thing that Paul is... Saying, right, it's like, if a guy is going into a fight and you go, well, go, well, go punch him in the face uh, really hard, it's like, oh, okay, you, <laughs> that, you're you right. That does seem to be really true. And while I don't disagree with Paul Felder, as I do look at the roster, who do you got? Who do you got that's this dominant wrestler that can get on top of people and just keep them there? And I think all of our minds go to the same place, which is likely where Felder's mind went, which is Chimaev And it's very interesting if you study the history of the sport. You will hear of people who back at the turn of the century went 11 years unbeaten in boxing, or a guy that was a champion for 15 years in boxing. He went 100 rounds without losing. You'll hear of these stories. You won't have evidence though. You won't be able to talk to somebody, even if it's your great, great ancestor who was actually there and witnesses. You won't have any video of it. Why? They're tied in. It's not that people were better some time ago. It's the relevance to tape and footage, which is the problem in beating Kamara Usman. If you go and you study the last 10 Kamara Usman fights, just as a round number off the top of your head, you're going to come to different conclusions. If you think that he's a ground and pound guy, okay, great. Go see the Tyron Woodley fight. It looks as though you're right. But then if you go and talk to Gilbert Burns and you find out how good Kamaru Usman's hands are, or you talk to George Masvidal, who got to feel them both, the punches, the kicks, and the grappling, which made for a more complete MMA fighter, it's a very different guy. That's not just a compliment to Kamaru Usman, that's very problematic for the opponents. If you're going to beat somebody, you first have to go and get a whole pile of data together. I, I brought you guys this example before as it pertains to the bullet. But if you go and you get all of her fights together and you find all the rounds that she, you're not going to find fights she lost. So then you start searching for rounds that she lost. You're not going to get more than one of those. So then you start looking for moments. You start to look for a sequence. You start to look for tendencies. You start to look for habits. I mean, looking for tendencies and habits, these are the words of a very desperate person. But you have to start somewhere. Then you go get a collection of these fights together and you got some really good notes and then you got three or four other people and between you and these next guys, you all take your best shot. One of you are going to crack the code and the, the belt turns over. That is the sport as it is as you see it. But all sports are true when it pertains to footage, which is why it's problematic to be Kumar Uzman because he's getting better. He's getting better, he's adapting, and he's changing. And we can even put our finger on some stuff that he's done. It's never a great habit to get the same result to go and do something different. It's just not a great habit. Boxers are more guilty than MMA, but as soon as you get beat, you throw everything out and you blame the team around you. It's extremely common in boxing. We see it in MMA, but more so about you get beat, you have a whole new team. You're not going to do your training camp in a whole new location for your next fight. Just one of these things. Kumar Usman, who was the champion of the world, left where his head coach was where his head training, his head workout partners were. He went from Florida, he goes out to Colorado. Now, his next fight is going to be a major tell. Real simple. This is pass or fail. Do you look better or do you look worse? He could still win. He could still have the desired outcome. That's not what the litmus test here. Do you look better or do you look worse? Well, he looked better and he looked different. That's the answer. All of a sudden, you got Kamar Usman with this incredible jab. All, you, all of a sudden, you got Kamar Usman with his chin buried that very hard to find and get him back. So if you go and study tape, great. You're at square one with Kamara Usman. I give you that diatribe because that's where you're at with Chemayev. This is a big problem beating Chemayev right now. You don't have a lot of footage to turn to. You could go and watch all every fight that he's ever had that's been televised. That's going to take you the same five minutes that everybody else. That's not much time. You watch his walk out in interviews. You haven't killed a half hour. You watch every fight in every sequence and rewind. Before he throws a jab, what is the first thing he does? Before he throws the cross, which way does he lean? I mean, these are tendencies that everybody wants to look for. Before he shoots a double leg, what did he do? If you go look at Jemiah's very last fight, he walked across the ring and he shot a double. He had no setup whatsoever. He had no tell. He had no gimmick. He doesn't st- hit you with this foot first. He doesn't blink before he does it. He walked right across and he grabs you with a double. The second that you're within arm's reach, it's very problematic. You've got to deal with it. Everybody has to deal with this. I remember back in my amateur days having a fight and I swear I will never fight a guy that I don't see a footage of. Now, there's no way for me to control that. I didn't have enough power back then. I was desperate to get fights, but I do remember when a fight concluded I had made myself this vow of which I did not keep because I had no ability to. I just understood how important it was. This is a rule right now in Oregon. This might be a national rule. I don't follow football that close, but I will tell you it for sure is a statewide rule. In football, you cannot watch video of your opponent. So you could go sit in the audience, and I'm talking about little kids. I'm talking about fifth grade, sixth grade, this rule in X. You can go and make a video. You cannot then go back and watch the tape as a way of preparing to beat them. That's weird for me. I don't understand football well, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to watch them, I don't know why a tape would exist if it wasn't to be broken down and studied. but it is a rule, and if you do that as a coach, they will take your coach, which is a volunteer job to start with, you're not paid, you'll still be fired. You're absolutely not allowed to do it, because of the sport of football says, if they know what our plays do, and we only got three or four that work, and if they start to understand what our signals are and our hand gestures are, they're going to stop the game. So everybody goes, yeah, that's true, it's not going to work, let's just all throw it out as a way to level the playing field. That's an extreme example in my, in my sense, it is. But in fighting, it's very true as well. If you don't have a lot of footage of a guy, or moreover, it's his first time and it's brand new, it's very tough. You go watch a collection of Kumar Usman fights, you're only going to come to one conclusion, which is he keeps getting better. How do you tell your pupil that when you're getting ready to fight him? Okay, the guy's a national champion wrestler, and for uh, the first 10 fights in his career, he took everybody down, and he took them down in absolutely every round. But uh, fights 11 through 15, he quit taking people down. He started breaking their nose with his hands. He's like, it's really tough. What do you tell a guy? What do you tell him? You are ended up in that same juxtaposition as it uh, obtains to Chemayev. Chemayev's had four fights. Takes everybody down, well, except for one guy, which he never even tried to take down, but he knocked him out on his feet. And then you get these different reports. You guys have to go to that. You, of course, have to go by reputation. What does Alexander Gustafson say? Chael Sutton went and watched Shemaya work out. What does he have to say? Sean Strickland spars with him every day. Can I get Sean on the phone and get some inside scoop? It just becomes a big problem. Am I worried about the guys wrestling? Am I worried about the guys striking? Because from the beginning of time, it generally is one or the other it's still this big question up in the air that somebody always throws you off on. Right when you think wrestling earns the day, you get introduced to a guy named Israel Adesanya who's never had a match. Right when you think jiu-jitsu rules the world, you go and run into a guy named Israel Adesanya who does not have a purple belt, a brown belt, or a black belt. He's got a gold belt, right? There's always somebody that throws you off. And when I do look at Paul Felder, who is saying, if you're going to get the best of uh, Kamar Uzman, you, you've got to take him down and keep him there. I'm changing Paul's words, but... Th- yeah, I think that Paul's right. It seems like that recipe would beat anybody if you can take them down and keep them there against their will. Whether you are passing, whether you are pounding, whether you're positioning, you're still gaining favor with the judges. I think that's true. But if you look a little closer at the division, you're going to be confronted with the next question, which is who amongst them has the ability to do that? All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. If you want more from me, you can find me over on TikTok, sun and CH where I post a couple quick videos every week featuring some things I don't normally talk about on this program. So go follow me there and then come back here on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sunn, and you are welcome.